Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game Productions. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined here by my co-host and star of this show, Jim Cott, the Hall of Famer. This is Cott's Corner. We've got a great show in store for you today. Three very, very pressing topics in, in the world of baseball, going from grassroots all the way up through the minor league system and back around again to, to analytics and, and some of the divide here in baseball. Uh, but with uh, before we say hello to Jim, just want to thank our audience. Uh, we're, we're up in the neighborhood of mid-40s. I think it's about 45,000 subscribers right now, closing in on 50, I think, by the end of this week or next. We are in 74 countries, uh, grassroots all the way to MLB front offices, Close to close to 900 colleges subscribe to the podcast, so we're very excited to have the year of college baseball as well. Sometimes that gets left out on an island, but make sure you continue to download, listen, like, subscribe, rate, and review. Give Jim five stars today. Write some nice comments in there. We always love your feedback, and that helps drive our show. Very sophisticated audience, very engaged audience. Uh, and with that, uh, welcome Jim Cott. Jim, welcome back to your show. Well, thank you very much. It's uh... Uh, been very active for me in the last month or so, uh, and it's been helpful in terms of what we do because uh, I cross paths with a lot of former major leaguers that have uh, a lot of opinions on what's going on today, and uh, it kind of helps reinforce, I think, our thinking on uh, the big divide that exists between the statistical departments and uh, the the people with actual playing experience and. Uh, talking to John Smoltz in White Plains this last weekend. And Teddy Simmons feels this way as well, both Hall of Famers. They're saying, we think it's going to start coming around. Now, I'm not sure I've seen any dent in that, but uh, they they think that hitters are beginning to, you know, realize that, uh, you know, use the whole field and uh, not just try to lift and launch and pay attention to the numbers. And uh, I know there are pitchers out there that – their hands are tied and their lips are closed because they'd like to stay in and pitch more, but the managers don't, uh, they don't have the courage to do it because, uh, you know, if they were to suffer an injury or miss a start, they're going to hear from the agent, they're going to hear from the analytics department, and that's kind of where we're at in the game. Yeah, it's a shame because it's, it's almost uh, similar or parallel to our world nowadays. People have to stand up and, and do what's right, what's best for the game, and and best for the players, none of what we're talking about um, on the other side, to me, resembles anything close to what's best for the players. You were a player. You were a coach. You were, had the 10,000-foot view as a commentator, so you got to be 10,000 feet, and then you got to be, get down in the, in the weeds. And, uh, and of course, a Hall of Famer, so you're, you're in that top one, uh, 0.1 percentile of uh, the greatest of the greats. I find it hard to believe that anybody in their right mind, if you took, take baseball out of it, go into any other vocation, why you wouldn't be the most coveted person or one of them to talk about the art of pitching or baseball in general. It is surprising. And uh, it's not an ego thing with me mentioning 1%. We, uh, they just had my 67th high school reunion back in Zeeland, Michigan. And uh, class of 85, there are 52 of us still around, 16 attended and I am told that uh, being at about 85, I am in the 1% of the population at that age. So I think that's why it's pretty hard for my voice to be heard by the 20 to 30-year-olds who uh, I'm certain make up a, a major part of it that are trained in an entirely different way. And in baseball, in my opinion, there it's unfortunate they're being pitchers particularly uh, are being really trained uh, 
the wrong way. And the managers, you can't blame the managers and you can't blame the coaches because they're hired uh, by front offices that are saying, uh, you know, we want we want all this information and we want to protect our pitchers. Of course, the more they try to protect him, the more injuries we see. So, uh, you know, it's a it's an uphill it's an uphill climb. Give you a quick example. And we have several of them for this show. Last night, Bailey Ober, who is a tall right hander, good pitcher, ball comes out of his hand so nicely, pitched five innings. He made one bad pitch in the first inning, gave up a two run homer. And then they took him out after five because he has now reached 118 and two-thirds innings, which is his career high. And they want to lighten his workload. They're thinking of going to a six-man rotation. Well, they brought in the reliever in the sixth who promptly gave up five runs and they lost the game. Now, uh, Bailey is very capable, as any of the other pitchers are, of pitching longer than that. But instead of finding ways to limit their workload, They should begin to look at ways that they can help them increase their workload. So a Bailey Ober could pitch seven, possibly eight innings and turn it over to the, you know, your top high leverage relievers the last two innings. And that's what we're up against because they think that they're, and what their reasoning is and what their information is, I really don't know because they don't talk to us, but, uh, but that's, that's what's kind of sad when I, pick up the box score and see these various pitchers that go six innings, pitch well, take them out, they lose the game. And we're just not training them uh, to pitch longer. You can't expect, I've used this analogy before, if you have a a top-notch thoroughbred that you think might be capable of winning the Kentucky Derby, he's got to run a mile and a quarter. Well, if you only let him run three quarters of a mile, uh, he's never going to have the conditioning, the stamina, to run a quarter of a mile. It's kind of like Tiger, let, let's go to golf. Let's say Tiger Woods, who's arguably uh, at least the best golfer of all time in the modern era. Uh, if he played three days and had the lead, and then they said, well, you know, we're, we're going to protect you. We're going to put another player in to play the fourth round. Well, you can't grade Tiger and you can't you can't compare him to the all-time greats because he's not able to finish the job. Now, fortunately, he did, but starting pitchers are not. I mean, the, the gold standard right now is Justin Verlander, and he's the guy they – he went six again last night. But I think in playoffs, he would certainly be capable of going more. And if he were trained properly, he could go more for the whole season. When, when a pitcher's uh, denied, I guess, the opportunity to go beyond – you know, the fifth, I, I like the analogy with the horse racing and Tiger Woods. I, I, people will go crazy on both of those, but they don't seem to question baseball. So when you, when you give a pitcher an opportunity to go beyond the fifth inning, in addition to the physical stamina, what else is gained uh, or potentially gained by going longer into the game? Well, I, I go back to my induction speech where I have made sure that my minor league playing manager could be there if he was healthy enough. And he certainly is. That's Jack McKeon, who is going to be 93 soon, and he's still scouting. Jack was my catcher in Missoula, Montana. When he was 27, I was 19, and I was going through a tough spell, and he said, kid, you're going to you're gonna pitch in the big leagues. You're going to pitch for me every four days. You may pitch a little relief in between because we only have seven pitchers. And uh, so that gave me a little confidence. Uh, 
to, to feel that they're not going to release me and send me home. So certainly I still had a few rough outings, but uh, Jack with the tight situation and say the sixth inning, he would come out and uh, he might spit a little tobacco juice at my shoes and say, well, kid, you got into it, figure out a way to get out of it. And by the end of that season at 19, I pitched 245 innings, including the playoffs. Arm never felt better. But I learned a lot about myself, about what it takes to finish the game and to pitch that third and sometimes fourth time through the batting order. Uh, Today, it's kind of a cookie cutter, one size fits all. You know, if this guy can't hit this particular pitch, well, let's just keep throwing it in that zone, pitch after pitch. Well, when you look at it in nine innings, uh, we talked about this with John Smoltz and, and other pitchers as well. It's the sequencing that gets you to a particular pitch. So when you get to that third and fourth at bat, you change your you change your sequence. You can't pitch Mickey Mantle maybe the same way in the third and fourth at bat that you did in the first at bat. And those are the kind of things you learn in the minor leagues, and you could learn them. I did as a 16 year old in high school and college and amateur ball. Uh, you learn those things by getting to pitch those last three innings. And today's young pitchers in the minor leagues. Uh, Heaven forbid if they get in a jam in the sixth inning, the third time through the batting order, why they're out of the game immediately. So they never really get to learn and develop uh, their full potential. Yeah. It also is ironic because baseball is a game of mistakes, and I think it's a war of attrition. And that goes against its very nature where you've got to be tough mentally. You've got to be able to go through and have weaknesses exposed, mistakes exposed, and be able to figure out ways to to not have that happen again or to minimize them the next time. And, and doing that to the pitcher just goes against the very fabric, in my mind, of what baseball's about. Yeah, you you know, it took me a while. Uh, I remember in AAA, it, I think it took me four or five starts before I actually closed the door and pitched nine innings. And you get to that eighth inning and you think, well, you know, every pitcher – his goal in those days was to pitch nine and then you'd make a mistake and, and uh, they'd score a run or two, you're out of the game and, and they had to take you out. And so eventually by going through those periods of time where you don't do the job, you learn what it takes to eventually do it. And uh, there is no better feeling for a starting pitcher than to shake hands with the catcher when the game's over. I remember the late Lenny Green, who was a wonderful teammate from uh, Detroit. And when I got uh, knocked around early, he'd say as I was on my way up to take a shower and come back and cheer for the boys, hey, kid, don't use all the hot water. You know, just kind of kneeling me. And then the next start, if he was sitting next to me as I warmed up and was prepared to start the game, he said, hey, stick around and shower with the boys today, which means pitch nine. And there's no better feeling than than doing that. I mean, if you pitched five or five and a third and got a win, they would look at you like, really? You're going to count that? Yeah, you're going to take <laughs> that? I don't, I don't uh, say that as a, as a uh, criticism against today's pitchers. It's the way we were trained and it's the way they were trained. And we have to go back to youth baseball, youth, in, youth sports uh, as a total. And I think the, uh, the famous Dr. Andrews, the orthopedic surgeon that did a lot of the elbow surgeries, uh, Frank Job did the first one, but a lot of them are doing it now. When we had a round table with uh, John Smoltz, Tom Holtz, uh, Dr. Alchek, who does that as well, 
their their message to parents play all sports there is a season to play baseball there's a season to play football basketball soccer to me i think and i was fortunate to have played it i think that the best training sport all around to play where you use your entire body is basketball uh, yeah. you use your legs you use your your arms you use your quickness you, you use everything and uh, i think i was glad that i played a lot of a lot of basketball but uh, these travel ball teams now, uh, and, and there are even big leaguers I know whose sons are great players and they go all around the country. Uh, they don't realize it, but all the all the games that they are playing is uh, maybe when you get to be 17 or 18, it's different. But if you're doing that at 11, 12, 13, eventually Dr. Andrews has said a lot of the, like the elbow, it's like taking a coat hanger and you gradually twist it. Well, Eventually, it's going to break. It takes you a long time twisting that coat hanger to make it break, but eventually it will break. And that's what's happening with a lot of these elbow injuries, that it starts really back in Little League baseball and probably travel ball. I'll give you a quick football example, and uh, it always uh, it always tells you about my age because my nephew's grandson and my nephew's son, Mark Borchter, played for the Kansas City Chiefs. He played in the NFL, obviously, is a football guy. And his son, Lincoln, is a great athlete. And he was going to be a two-way starter on his freshman team. And he pulled a muscle. I want to say it's the avuncular muscle, something that attaches the hamstring to the glute. And he's going to miss two, three months. Uh, I just wonder when you hear that, because I, I never heard of it when I was uh, injuries like that, when I was a 13, 14 year old, I wonder if we're, that's an example of pushing kids to run too hard, run too fast, play too hard, whatever it is to kind of uh, overload that skeleton that's not completely developed yet. Oh, I, I, I think you're on the right path with that as, as, and I have, children about that age right now, uh, 15 all the way down to 10. And my wife and I, both former college athletes, me being a former professional athlete. And I laugh, I laugh at the kids and parents when they ask me the question, two questions. One is, you know, should we specialize? And I, and I laugh at, at a young kid. I, I was fortunate enough to play two college sports for four years. My coaches never wrestled over me. They, they worked it out. Um, I was able to manage both physically and mentally, and I still haven't chosen a sport. I'm 50 years old, and uh, certainly these young kids aren't mentally mature enough or physically mature enough, as, as you're pointing out, to, to do that. The second thing they ask me about the sports is they watch all this stuff on YouTube, whatever the social medium is they're watching. And these trainers, I, I liken them, even some guys that played professionally or collegially, at, at, uh, they, be, they have become YouTube trainers. And they take whatever sensations out there. They charge these parents a ridiculous amount of money. The parents aren't willing to educate themselves on it because they're they fall victim to clickbait. And they're trying to train these young kids at a young age, physically and mentally, like an eight to nine year pro player because Aaron Judge does it or Ken Griffey did it. That kid's not Ken Griffey. May never be. And uh, I agree with you. The, the multi sport athlete is is waning, and I think. As a result, you're seeing some of these injuries like you saw with your your, uh, your nephew's son. Um, and, and again, I don't know I'm not there, but it sounds – I don't even know what that muscle is 
And I feel, I think yeah. I'm fairly educated and uh, I've never heard of said, maybe when I, I sprained ankle, a jammed finger, that's about it. Uh, but you know, bloody yeah, no. Lincoln, uh, Lincoln plays other sports too, but I, I think that's a, a, a question of maybe too, too much too soon. Um, you know, the um, diverting just for a moment, and then I want to get back on some ideas for youth baseball, but uh Ben Ruta, R-U-T-A, was a minor league prospect with the Yankees, and he just came out with with quite a quite a splash in the New York Post, saying that in the minor leagues he didn't learn anything about the fundamentals of baseball, how to bunt, uh, you know, situational hitting. Uh, all they did was look at numbers, uh, exit velocity, launch angle, and he said he thinks that's one of the big issues in the Yankee uh, minor league system is that they're not developing baseball players. And see, if I, if I were, if I could dial the clock back and say I was in my thirties and had the kind of experience that I had, and I was coaching a youth team, I would, I would make sure that each of the players got a chance to play different positions They play the outfield, the infield, Maybe they don't want to be a catcher. That's fine. Be a pitcher, an infielder. And they learn how to slide. They learn how to run the bases properly, hit the inside of the bag with your left foot, right foot, so forth like that. Uh, they would learn that at a young age. And then if you're a pitcher, I would challenge you uh, to pitch three innings and never strike on anybody out and never throw as hard as you could and see if you can get – that's what we'd call inviting contact. That's why I always said a perfect game for me was 27 pitches, 27 outs, yeah. 27 ground outs or fly outs. And, uh, and get, get the mindset on challenging the hitter, daring him to hit it instead of being afraid he's going to hit it and try to strike him out. One of my uh, the favorite games in the last week, I was so happy to see him do well. I know he's had some struggles too, but Dallas Keuchel pitched six perfect innings for the Twins. He's 35 now, won a Cy Young Award with the Astros. He probably couldn't black your eye from 60 feet, but he's got a change-up. He change-ups off. He can change up off the change-up. He's got a little cutter. He's a pitcher. He invites contact, and uh, somehow along the line, we need to uh, we need to train our pitchers when they're young uh, to pitch like that, to not try to strike any, see if you can pitch a game without striking anybody out and just uh, get the hitter out of the way in two or three pitches. But as long as we have, as you mentioned, these YouTube spots where they're training kids to throw harder. So when they get to high school, oh, he throws 92. They they read about, is it Paul Skeens, the number one draft pick? Yes. See, now he's one in a million. But everybody it's, thinks they will be that same pitcher, and and those those guys are standouts like Ken Griffey Jr. was. They're they're not the norm; they're the exception. That's right. So uh, I remember when uh, managers, when I began to lose a little velocity, some managers would be a little uh, hesitant to stick with you because you know they want the power guy. And I used to say, you know, Walter Johnson's not around anymore. You got to deal with us mortals. We don't yeah. pitch like that, you know, and uh, it's, it's a hard thing. It was a hard thing to sell uh, the latter part of my career, but it's even harder now because uh, the propeller heads up in the office there, you know, that's why uh, I saw the White Sox just dismissed their uh, 
their general manager and executive VP of baseball ops, Kenny Williams, but there have been no managers fired this year. And I think there's a reason for that, that the manager would turn around and say, well, what are you firing me for? I'm just listening to the information that they hand down to me and, and playing the game accordingly. Yeah. So they're, they're basically, you've taken away their managerial skills and you've just caused them to read the spreadsheets and manage accordingly. I'm not sure which is worse, though. They probably feel like they're in purgatory, not being able to influence the game like they could if they were able to use their their gut and their experience a little bit. In addition to the, the information, we're not saying dismiss information, but, you know, gosh, the uh, one of my issues, Jim, with, with the analytics and, and full disclosure, the audience knows I have I went back to school at a late age uh, and I'll t- I've told the story on the air before. I won't tell it again today, but and got my Ivy League. Uh, advanced degree in analytics. And one of the problems I have is that they treat the game of baseball like it's a puzzle that can be solved. And that is not, um, if you're going to use analytics out there, that is not how analytics is designed. That's how they're using it today. Baseball is so, I mean, there's so many possibilities out there that it can't be solved and it should be treated like a mystery where you're identifying critical factors, having conversations about it, more about English language, speaking, storytelling, talking with one another, rather than using it as an absolute number. And that's that's probably what what Ben Ruda was getting at a little bit too. I mean, I think that took it took the baseball world a little bit back because somebody spoke up. That was a you know so recent as a player, but um, I don't think people were surprised with what he said. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know any other businesses that operate that I, I, way. I know I've I've mentioned my late brother in law's name before, Max Dupree, who's a great business leader, went into the business hall of fame, wrote several books on leadership, and he was a big believer in tribal stories. You know, he said, uh, if you're gonna get the job as a CEO, why don't you call the CEO that ran this company before that and find out what he did wrong, what he did right, what would he do differently? And the tribal stories, like if you could have, if you could have been in Philadelphia, and been Dick Bramer, our twins play-by-play guy, and listened to Charlie Manuel and I at breakfast for an hour, uh, those were tribal stories. And today's propeller heads would have no idea what we were talking about. And then when I'm at these collectors' show, like Jonathan Papelbon was at this one, John Smoltz, Big Poppy, myself, we were all at the same table. And we start, you know, telling those tribal stories. Well, you know, we did those while we were still playing. When the game ended, uh, we'd sit around uh, this, particularly as I got into my Phillies years and, and Cardinal years, we'd sit around a table and we'd look back at the game. And, you know, if it was a young pitcher like John Stuper, who's always uh, been so uh, you know, it's always humbled me when he, when he talks about how much he learned from me and went on to coach for Yale for 27 years. But we sat in, around those tables and just talked about what we did, what wrong, what we did right, uh, game situations. And, uh, you know, those are tribal stories that you learn from. And uh, I, I don't know any other business that's turned its back on that like uh, like baseball has. Uh do you think it's? I, I don't know when when it's you know when it's going to change, but uh, I wish it would. Uh, yeah. uh, I, like I said, John uh, Smoltzy and Teddy Simmons, they think it's going to come around. I don't know who's going to be the person. Maybe uh, when a manager gets let go or something, or really kind of vents and speaks out and says, "Look, I I would have managed this 
a whole lot differently, but they're paying me good money. And uh, I had to listen to the guys upstairs and, and it didn't work as well. Look at the Yankees are going through right now. I don't know what in the world the answer to their problems are. Yeah. I, I think, you know, Joe Madden came out with, with his book and kind of laid it out there. I almost think it has to come full circle where, you know, we're seeing some of these players get into ownership right now where they've got to be at the top of the heap to make some decisions that benefit players because a guy like Alex Rodriguez, for instance, he obviously does not believe in what's going on from a hitting standpoint. And I'm certain he would agree with you from a pitching standpoint, even though he's not a pitcher. Uh, I'm thinking it's going to take guys uh, of that stature who have made that kind of money to buy into ownership and start making the change top down. I, I ask you, and you may not have an answer to this. I, I struggle with it myself and maybe it just doesn't matter because they're both the same. Uh, they both come up with the same result. But do you think it's ignorance or arrogance as to why they, as the propeller heads, or as Kevin calls them, the nerds won't uh, won't just? I, I think it's I think it's more arrogance. I think that, uh, and that's why there's no dialogue uh, between us. Uh, these are just rumors, but I've heard stories where, uh, where they will go to say a pitcher has talked to a former big league pitcher and there's stories where they actually go, look, uh, don't listen to what he's got to say anymore. You know, we do it differently now and we do it better. So I think it's more arrogance. Uh, I have never, uh, had anybody ask me how I conditioned my arm in spring training, how I thought about different situations. I mean, here I am, a, a rep representative of the Twins, and pitched their in their organization for a long time. Uh, I think started more games, had more innings, et cetera, than anybody. Uh, I have never been approached. The only, uh, I think I mentioned this before, the best dialogue I had when I went to uh, spring training, I think it was, yeah, last year, was with Kenta Maeda's interpreter. We were in the small little... Uh, part of the locker room together. So our lockers were almost next. And he started asking me uh, about my arm and spring tree. How'd you condition your arm? And then he in turn in, in Japanese uh, talked to one of his coworkers right next to me there. And I told him, I said, man, this is pretty interesting. Nobody has. I told him what I learned from Warren Spahn and Robin Roberts and people like that. But uh, those conversations are few and far between. And I really I really think it's arrogance. Uh, when you see uh, clubs hiring uh, Dick Bramer, for exactly, gets on the plane with the Twins, there's a traveling party of about 80. He said, there's about 30 or 40 of them. I don't even know. They're, they might have 10 trainers and 15 analytics guys. And, and you know, they say, well, analytics helps us win. They think, or Rob Manfred told me that. He said, they really think that analytics helps them win a couple of games a year. And I said, well, one team is using it to win two games means the other team, they got the same analytics. They're losing two games. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's still, you know, it's still the, the same. Can you, can you execute? And, uh, you know, I think for all the, for all the games, the analytics department thinks they gain, they're probably losing by not teaching their players how to run the bases, how to bunt, uh, how to do the fundamental things, particularly the thing that stands out. And I was actually talking to Dallas Keuchel about this because he's won a few gold gloves. Pitchers these days are in no position to field the ball. There are more hits that go up the middle. Uh, now, I, I should say in years past because I don't watch much baseball anymore, but I read the stories of the pitchers that are getting hit 
physically and uh, some serious as Tanner Houck, I think just came back and pitched a little last night, but he got hit in the face. There's, there's some serious injuries, but they don't spend enough time with those kinds of things. The fundamentals that will help you uh, win games rather than looking at the uh, computers and the spreadsheets. Now, I want to ask you a question about youth baseball because you're, yeah. you're so involved in that. Uh, in Little League, in the Little League World Series going on right now, we see a lot of these pitchers that are just, they're overpowering kids. So instead of, instead of having youth baseball, having it determined by what age you are, wouldn't it be good to have it determined by what size you are? So if Johnny here is 14, but he's already 6'1 and 100 and whatever, why, he probably uh, could pitch up an age group. And then you've got other kids who just physically aren't there yet, you know, like throwing the ball in from right field or whatever. We'll keep them down at the, at the lower level. So it, it seems to me if you did it by size instead of by age, you'd have more level playing fields. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I think maybe a marriage of both where um, they do that in Pop Warner football where they, do, yeah. they, they have a certain age that, you know, they kind of group it together, but you can be a certain weight class. And, you know, if you're a younger kid and you're, you're bigger, they'll put you up to a certain point because there's a mental component to it that you want to make sure the socialization is there. But yeah, I think there's baseball's never addressed that marriage. Uh, basketball, actually, I put a, fu- a funny post up there with a, an actual picture of two games on Facebook, I got asked a question about kids playing up and down, and I put a picture of a six foot five supposed eleven year old and uh, <laughs> dunking in a game over, you know, uh, like a four foot one eleven year old. And uh, yeah, I think that's those are things that I, I don't think youth sports takes into account because there's so much over legislation on the silly stuff, and parents. I don't say parents; adults are involved, and adults are reliving their dreams through some of these kids. Some are doing it the right way, teaching skill development. It's not about the wins and losses. It's about teaching them process and paying it forward. Um, but yeah, I, I think you'd have a lot of uh, adults that have been making a lot of money off the backs of these young kids and parents uh, over these quote-unquote championships that they win every weekend. Um, yeah, probably they, they, go to these, they go to these tryout camps, uh, you know, or, or – you know, and they have to pay money to go those, sure. but they, you know, they ought to learn the skills that they can learn as a youngster. Now, the it, it's uh, kind of an advantage being a smaller country like the Netherlands. I went over there years ago. Uh, the Yankees had a backup shortstop named, uh, shortstop named Robert Einhorn, and he ran baseball. I think he's into the soccer field now, but he, he was the head of baseball in the Netherlands, and uh, they have developed some really good uh, amateur teams over there. They they win the European Championship quite often. Yeah. They start with their kids that are, I'll say, six, seven, eight, and they have a much smaller baseball. So, for example, if a 12-year-old came to me or his dad came to me and said, show my son some grips on the ball, well, all he can do is grip the ball in the palm of his hand. He, he can't grip it with finger pressure like we would or he would when he gets a little older. But then in the, in the Netherlands, they start with a smaller ball. And then when they they uh, get into the next age group, the ball is a little bit bigger. And then finally, when they get into that adult program, then they use a, a baseball that's a full size. And I've seen some of these little league games in the past when my grandsons were much younger. And uh, it was kind of sad to see the game where, 
the third baseman can't really get the ball over to first base. Yeah, uh, you need a cutoff. Yeah, and uh, so I think that would that would make the kids feel better about uh, about being able to play the game. That's why watching. Uh, uh, when my granddaughter was a teenager, watching those uh, girls' youth softball games were more exciting. They play on a smaller diamond. Uh, you know, they're able to throw the ball from third to first. Fundamentally, they're so good. To me, that was more exciting than watching a Little League game. And it, it had a lot to do with a smaller diamond. And uh, I, I don't know if the ball is a little bit smaller. I think it probably is. But uh, I, I think that's a direction. I mentioned that to Steve Keener years ago when he was uh, uh, the as- assistant in Little League Baseball. One of the, I think he might be the president of it. Yes, now, yeah. yeah, we've had him I on the show. You ought, to, you ought to try those smaller baseballs in, in Little League, but uh, who knows? Maybe it's too expensive to manufacture them, or maybe they're, uh, they're getting a good royalty from using a particular ball. Like you said, money is driving a lot of this stuff. Okay. But every other sport – does what you're suggesting. Football does that. They gradually move up to a larger ball, even through college. The college ball is not the same size as the pro ball. And um, soccer does it. Basketball does it. You know, basketball is using a a, a mini ball, then 27 and a half, then it goes to 28, then it goes to 28 and a half. I mean, it it gradually moves up to the the pro ball. So these kids, they're doing in every other sport except for baseball. And you, you, you know, you look at these arm injuries and how much of it starts at that young age where they're Kids, kids are resilient. They'll learn how to compensate. If you give a kid a ball, he's going to eventually figure how to get it to first base, but it's not going to be properly thrown. I, I agree with you. I think that's a, that is a tremendous idea that, that should be pushed. I know Jim Rooney's talked to us about it before. Uh, Jim's a host on our show. He was with the Brewers uh, for a number of years as their pitching coordinator and, and scout. And he, he is heavy into the mechanics of baseball, and he scratches his head at the same thing you just mentioned. Yeah, and I uh, – people – People might be saying that are out there saying, well, did you use a smaller baseball? Well, I didn't play organized baseball till I was 16, 15 or 16 years old. Uh, we didn't have Little League. Our baseball was six kids gathering down at Burghorst gas station and running out to uh, the closest field and just getting a taped up ball of some kind. And, and just uh, that's why I learned to be a fairly decent hitter for a pitcher as a left-hander because I had to hit the ball to the left fielder. I was out. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I played softball. And, of course, softball is a great exercise. Uh, just as a side story, Denny McLean, the year he won 31 games uh, for the Tigers back in 68, he bowled all winter. And I used to bowl in the winter. That's a great exercise for pitchers because underarm, you know, if pitching were natural, we'd be walking around with our arms up above our head. And so it's yeah. unnatural once that arm comes up over your head. But pitching softball or bowling or when I go out and hit golf balls, you can do that for a long period of time and you're not going to suffer any injury. So I was lucky. I pitched a lot of fast pitch softball till American Legion ball came along. And then I was, uh, you know, at least my hands were big enough then that I could grip the ball properly. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's funny is Rick Barry often preaches that about basketball too. He was um, famous for shooting underhand free throws. He's, I think, still the career leader. If not one, he's two with free throw percentage. And he, he asks pro players all the time, why not let your arms hang? It's such a much more relaxed position than any time you raise them above yeah. your head. But it's, I guess, the perception of it. But yeah, I, I think the point you're making um, even if, if, if it seems outrageous to the audience, just take a look at some practical uses of it. And 
you know, you got to be careful with with uh, having common sense, Jim. Common common sense is uncommon nowadays. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, gosh, I, I think oftentimes I, I talk to my my uh, former players of the same age group. I said, man, if I was if I were younger and, and wealthy enough to buy a team. I would start a team. I would have no analytics department. Now, analytics and, and learning mechanics with the track man, and that, that's a completely different. Justin Verlander just learned how to tweak his windup because they were looking at track man. So that has a great use, those kind of uh, apparatuses that are out there in terms of helping you uh, with your skill. And uh, I, I think that's that's good. I think the analytics, the, the statistics can still be helpful in evaluating players. I think Tampa has done a good job of that with uh, finding out where this pitcher was a stud reliever for a while. And then all of a sudden, the numbers that they had said, well, he's losing a bit off his fastball. His spin rate's not quite as good. And they unload him. So I think it has value in the front office. I know Jim Beatty, former big league pitcher and general manager, feels the same way. We just have to find a way to to train kids to play the game. And so if I if I were uh, owned a team and an organization, I'd say we're going to hire a lot of scouts. We're going to hire a lot of coaches that used to play in the major leagues. I remember Sam Perlazzo, who was a great major league coach, and he was yeah. in camp with the Twins and. They were teaching infielders to use a position that, uh, I mean, he just, uh, he had no voice anymore. And those are the kind of guys that I, that I would use the, you know, like Lee Trevino would never want to take a golf lesson from somebody that he couldn't beat. You know, he, he said, what's this guy going to tell me if I could beat him? And uh, we, we need to get back to that getting guys with game experience, but uh, I don't, I don't know if that's happened. Uh, I would like to think there's still some recently retired players that uh, organizations would uh, would hire to to try to teach some game skills like that instead of the digital stuff they're throwing at them. Here's here's more common sense, and you you poke holes in it if you think I'm wrong. But again, we talk about no other business doing things. When you're trying to grow something, the worst thing you could do is reduce the entry point. And Major League Baseball obviously has done that with the draft reduction, the reduction of minor league franchises, including the rookie leagues. Um, because of that reduction now, again, common sense, uh, I apologize for using that, but wouldn't it make sense to put as many veteran uh, baseball guys, former coaches, former players, flood the class A level, since there is no luxury of rookie ball anymore, flood the class A level with all these veterans that can show the kids. So the, the man, the skippers, the do whatever you're doing, but getting guys out there that can, can just have those, those conversations like you're talking about and show them how to slide and show them how to bunt fly ball communication, you know, footwork on fielding balls, pitchers that are able to at least defend themselves on the mound with a ball hit back up. But we hope that they could maybe not feel like you did, but um, you know, at least at least come close to it. But uh, I, I mean, in a logical world, and again, tell me I'm wrong if I am. But w- would that not make sense with the changes they've made, rather than oh, abandon it? Certainly would. But again, I think we 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 talked about it often. Here is uh, is what drives things is is revenue and money. And uh, I remember when I was a kid, my dad would get the sporting news. It came on a Monday, and it took us all week to read it because there were so many minor leagues. 
Oh, yeah. And then when I first got into professional ball, you know, every organization had like the Cardinals had George Kissel, the Reds had George Sugar, and the Twins, we had Del Wilbur and Cal Ermer and some other guys like that that weren't big league stars, but they had professional playing experiences and they were trained. George Case, who was an old big leaguer, George taught me how to bunt. I think he was a coach up at Maine for a while, but yeah, he taught me how to bunt and, uh, you know, he was a big leaguer. So we learned from guys like that. And uh, I'm so glad that uh, I did play in that era where I could, I could learn. I didn't, didn't have coaches in the minor leagues, but we would get to go to spring training and those, those coaches would all be in spring training where uh, the days were long and we spent a lot of time on those fundamental things like bunting. We all put these old pants on that were made out of feed bags with pads and we learn how to slide in the grass, learn how to hook slide, slide with your left leg, slide with your right leg, tuck under, learn how to run the bases, touch that first base, you know, as you're making the turn, uh, things like that in spring training. And then by the time you get to the big leagues, why you know that now uh, we're having with all the teams and uh, the diluted, uh, you know, with expansion, we're having players rushed up there that haven't really had a chance to, you know, to kind of develop the, the fundamentals and things that they need uh, to get up there and stay and stay there without injury. You know, pitchers, they go up and down, uh, get down there, pitch two innings up. Oh, now we got to give you a few days off. You go back up. You never get a chance to develop your craft. Uh, like I was given the opportunity uh, with Missoula and my friend Jack McKeon. Yeah. What with, uh, it, I think it's a great point with minor leaguers coming up, not ready. And often my, one of my philosophies was given to me by a, a veteran player way back when said, just, just develop one new skill in off season. And over the time, whether you start when you're a you know, middle school player or you start as high school, think about that one new skill. You learn how to bunt this off season. That doesn't mean lose it. You learn how to slide. Um, you know, I think it's a, it's a great way to compound skill learning. But my, my question to you is with, with going back to Ben Ruda, he had obviously a general complaint over the minor league system with the Yankees. Were there specific things that he pointed out that really resonated with you? Well, in the article, he just talked about he, he didn't learn the fundamental uh, skills to help him become a baseball player. It was all to look at the statistical numbers, the launch angle, the exit velocity. And so he he really felt that nobody taught him how to be a base, you know, how to be a baseball player. Yeah. Uh, back to your point about learning one new skill. Uh, my first kind of breakout year was in 1962. Um, my record was 18 and 14. Now we lost a lot more games. If you look at the top 15 winners in major league history pitchers, they're also the top losers because, uh, you didn't get taken out after six innings. You stayed in long enough to probably give up the, the winning run. So I was 18 and 14, had uh, quite a few complete games and shutouts and feeling pretty good about myself. And Eddie Lopat, uh, pitching coach, said to me at the end of the year, uh, you know, kid, you're, uh, you're going to have to be twice as good next year to be as good as you were this year. I think it was, uh, yeah, it might have been even a year. It was, it was sometime in those early 60s. And what he meant was uh, – I had to improve on something. You couldn't just stand still because now 
the hitters know you. You're going to face those same hitters again next year. So you either have to, say, improve your curveball or maybe add a pitch or get better control. So uh, that was a challenge for me during my whole career for 25 years is every year uh, I felt like I had to try to get better to stay there because, you know, younger players are come along, bigger, faster, stronger. And if you just stand still and don't continue to learn, you're going to get run over. Yeah, and no, I, I think that's a great message to the, the kids in our audience too, and not well the adults as well because they need to foster an environment that, that's around that. Whether it's youth baseball all the way up to as Ben Ruda was talking, the professional baseball system. Now I got a question for you as a competitor, and obviously you competed at a much higher level than I did. But uh, in terms of the way analytics is used in the game, and I want to put you in the, the seat as a you're 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 back in the day as a pitcher. I always see learning and competing uh, like a wave. It's stress and it's undulation, stress, undulation. See that big wave crashing down with that energy, and then it's got to have time to kind of pull back. When when I am in deep competition or when I'm in that competitive mode, I'm trusting my gut. I'm letting my body do what it was trained to do. You're relying on that that, uh, subconscious, you know, everything's already been built in. And you, you don't fall to the level of any numbers or expectations. You fall to the level of your training. And then when that time is off, I always set some time aside after competition, whether it's a game or even as a coach, I did it, or it's an off season. That's the time to learn. That's the time to sit down and take a look at some things and develop that one skill. Um, now that's, that's my limited point of view on it. That's kind of how I took learning for me. And it, I've, I've kind of adapted it to the players I work with and, and my own children. How would that have sat with you as a pitcher uh, with, with analytics being thrown at you in the middle of competition? Could you have handled that? I mean, I know I wouldn't have dealt with it well. I didn't even want to see a person flash a number of a pitch being thrown from second base, you know, when they thought they could read the signals. Uh, I said, just leave me alone. Let me hit. I'm going to hit how I hit. But uh, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, of course, I, I never played, fortunately, in the in the era where they were throwing stuff like that at me. But I, I think maybe the best analogy would be I remember when Johnny Sane, uh, when he first took over as coach in 65, and, you know, he was such a wise man. He knew what the answer was going to be. But he said, now, uh, how many pitches do you have, Jim? I said, well, I got a fastball, a curve, and I changed speeds on my curve. We hesitated to throw a lot of uh, sliders in those days because it was taught like you're turning the knob of a door, and there were there were several in, uh, elbow injuries to young pitchers. So, Nowadays, they call it a sweeper. While the yeah. sweeper's been around for 100 years, it's just uh, like Smoltzy and I were talking about that. It's it's uh, faster than a curve, but slower than a slider. So it's kind of a fast curve. So I said, I throw one of those once in a while. I don't have a very good changeup. And John said, well, what do you think you ought to spend most of your time working on? Well, the logical answer for a young, inexperienced pitcher like me was, well, I guess my changeup and my slurp. No. If you throw your fastball 70% of the time, then spend 70% of the time throwing your fastball on your your time in spring training in between starts because you want to be able to own that pitch. So if nothing else is working that day, my go-to pitch was a, a moving fastball down and away. I faced mostly right-hand hitters, and I wanted to get ground balls. So I wanted to know in a clutch situation that I could trust that fastball. There are more game-winning hits, and it's been going on for years, on bad breaking balls late in the game. 
because nobody trusts their fastball because they probably don't have the command of it that they should. So that was a good lesson for me. I always spent a lot of time on my fastball. Uh, and when I coached for Pete uh, Rose, I would take pitchers down to the to the bullpen and they'd get a little warmed up. I said, you know, uh, let's see, how many strikes can you throw with your fastball? Anywhere in the strike zone. And I remember one pitcher, he had threw two or three. I said, well, you're not even a one-pitch pitcher yet. Let's, let's get to where you can throw eight or nine out of ten. Okay, you can do that. Now let's cut the plate in half. How many can you throw to the outside half out of 10? How many can you throw to the inside half? And then we'll cut it in quarters. So you can, the fastball is the only pitch that you can throw to all four quadrants of the strike zone. And the changeup and the breaking ball don't rely as much on exact spots. They rely more on the break or the change of speeds. But the fastball demands... Uh, if you have a, a, an elite one, like, say, a Justin Verlander or Max Scherzer, they have not only uh, great stuff, but great command. But uh, you want to have command of that fastball. So in, in seventh, eighth inning, got tight situations. I learned the hard way a few times. I thought, well, now's the time for a breaking ball. Boom. And then Johnny would say, remember, best pitch in those late. And Dusty Baker, when I first saw Dusty, we talked about what's the, what's the toughest pitch late in the game to hit. He said a well-controlled fastball. And so that was kind of where I spent my time. Yeah, it makes sense. I think it's, again, great message to our young audience out there when you're throwing, throwing bullpens. The only way to work on your craft is to work on your craft on the mound. And I think a lot of these kids are afraid to throw in between starts. As we talked from the beginning of the show, they're, they're a little coddled right now. They're not being trained like that, that horse that's supposed to run the, the mile and a quarter. They're, they're running, you know, half a mile. And they're afraid to throw in between because, they're, they're, again, they've, they've been told that they've got to, you know, they, they, can't, they can't throw off the mile. It's got to be flat ground or it's, it's yeah. crazy instruction. Well, they find out it'll rust out for it'll wear out. So, and that, I was so fortunate to have uh, coaches like Eddie Lopat and Johnny Saint. I remember uh, – a scene in Chicago where I had pitched uh, nine innings a day before, and the next day it was pitching 101. We go to the bullpen. We just call it exercising our arm. So I'm throwing a little light, you know, not obviously not like I'm in a game, but I'm using my legs and I'm, you know, driving off the pitching rubber. And Tommy John is running his sprints around Comiskey Park, and he stopped me. He said, what are you doing? You pitched nine innings last night. I said, TJ, I throw a little every day. This is where I make my living. Well, fast forward when Tommy John had that surgery and when he healed up, Dr. Job's message to him was, now throw, play catch a little every day, throw a little every day. So when he and I became teammates in uh, 79, uh, we were down in the bullpen throwing every day, you know, not, not game conditions, but just getting the use, the feel of the mound, the rubber, the slope of the mound, feel of the baseball every day. And you'll do that. And, uh, you, you won't suffer. And I mean, nobody can predict when you're going to hurt your arm. It's a very fragile thing. You can be in the best condition possible. Uh, I had that happen to me in 1967 in September. as having the best month of pitching I ever had. And boom, I had the injury that Tommy had. Well, I had pitched 500 and some innings in, in less than two years. And I think my body was saying maybe that was just a little too much. So we probably took it to the other extreme a little. Yeah. Well, you, you, you can, you develop some intuition though, along the way, I would imagine where 
you now felt what, what was the extreme for your body the next time around. I think that's, that's being missed today. It's being lost, um, on our young kids climbing the ladder to the big leagues. But, um, we, we've kept you close to an hour today. What, what, what haven't we covered? What do we want to touch on, retouch on? What do we want to leave? Well, our I think just what we're, we, we talked about it the last time we've, um, we're entering that month now where, uh, you know, it's September baseball. It's not probably as stressful as it used to be, though maybe to the individual teams it is, and that's because uh, we have diluted uh, with this third wild card. You know, we have diluted the quality of what it takes to get into the postseason so much. I mean, a, a team might be a few games over 500, and they're, they'll qualify for the tournament. So the uh, the this, this season basically is a qualifying uh, season to see who gets in the tournament. So I think for me, it's going to be interesting to see how uh, Baltimore, Texas uh, hasn't been there for a while, though they have a lot of veteran talents, but just to see how some of the young teams uh, like Baltimore in particular, they have so many talented young kids. Uh, how are they going to handle September baseball when, you know, when they wake up and all of a sudden, wow, you know, a couple more wins, we're going to the postseason, we're going to win the division. And that's just, uh, I was so fortunate to be on, I think, six teams, five five teams that, uh, same teams, but we won over 100 games each of those years. And I think with the Cardinals, we won the low 90s. But uh, it's such a different feeling coming to the ballpark in September when you know the finish line is there. And uh, it's just a different stress and a different uh, uh, pressure. And that, that, again, goes back to the experienced coaches. Very few teams, uh, you know, some have coaching staffs that have no major league experience on their coaching staff. And that's where um, I think I mentioned maybe in our last podcast where Keith Hernandez said in uh, 82, we got into September, close race with the with the Phillies and the Expos. And he said, man, this is a nerve wracking time. And Gene Tennyson and I said, yeah, would you rather be 20 games out playing out the season or would you rather be where you're at right now? So enjoy it, embrace it. This is where you want to be. Yeah. No, I, I think well, well said. They mentioned the Orioles, a uh, young man having a great second year, Gunnar Henderson. Oh boy. He's coming on, isn't he? He is. He, he, I got asked this on Facebook and I really, I've never usually stumped. I take pride in just being able to respond to every question. And I got asked by a uh, uh, former umpire, cur- cur- currently umpires, but he's, he's stepped away uh, a little bit and he just put my name on there. I knew what he was asking. Gunnar Henderson had a shot to hit for the cycle and his last at bat, he had a nice poke down the right field line. All he needed was a single and he hustled his rear end off the second base and, and got a double. And the whole dugout stood up with their hands, like, what are you doing? And yeah. I, was, I got asked, like, what, what would I have done in that situation? And I'd like to say that I I would have played the baseball situation as it was and and, uh, and not stopped that first. But I wouldn't have faulted him if he did, I don't think, because it is such a rare feat. But um, I said the answer I'd like to say is that I would have taken the double two, but you really don't know until you're in that situation. Yeah, I, I think it's an example, and this is not critical. It's just the, it's just the way sports world is. It's become more about me than about we. And, uh, you know, I think in a normal game situation, a player, if he hits a ball down a right field line, he wants to go for a double. I'm glad he did that. Oh, he didn't even hesitate. He was moving. No, 
And uh, I really like how he's playing the, the oddly rushman, phenomenal catcher, switch hitter. Yeah, Mountcastle. Uh, and then they, they have a young pitcher. I was talking to John Smoltz about him, Grayson Rodriguez. Yes, yep. Uh, and they, they picked up this reliever from the Twins that the, the Twins traded, Robin, uh, not Robinson Cano, but uh, so I think his first name starts with X, Cano, and then the Batista at the end. So they've, they've, got the, uh, they've got the physical talent there, but, you know, it's, it's going to be fun to watch. I hope they do. I'm, I'm pulling for teams like that. Nothing personal against the guys in Houston, but I just hate it when teams can buy a Justin Verlander with two months to go and help them win the pennant. I just wish they'd push that trading deadline back to June one. And yeah. then whatever team you have, you know, most managers I played for said, I want 40 games to see where I'm at. Do, do I have as good a team now as I thought I had coming out of spring training? And if yeah. not, I go to the general manager say, we could do, we could use this. We could use that. I think one year, uh, was it the Giants picked up Madlock or the Pirates got him from the Giants? I mean, you know, you make an acquisition that the Yankees did it with David Justice. Uh, you pick up a – but get that player early enough in the year, and then after June 1, look, you play with your AAA players if a guy gets hurt. Uh, it, it's going to motivate guys to stay in there. Like uh, Dusty Baker had told me, uh, you know, what's the difference between managing players today and years ago? He said competition. He said, we, we played a lot more games because we played even if we hurt a little bit, because if we didn't play, there'd be somebody there to take our job. So uh, out of motivation is kind of like if you don't pitch, you don't eat. So you didn't want to give up your start. And unfortunately, that doesn't exist anymore because uh, I'm happy for the guys financially the way they're doing. But it's, it's too easy to just miss a turn and take a day off or I don't feel good. I got a little tightness in my ribs and uh, we just couldn't afford to do that. Yeah, it's a great point by Dusty. And it, what's, you know, that's a syndrome that's going down to the, it starts at the youth level. We, we I talked about it on the Facebook post the other day where these kids are being taught to be independent contractors early in life where it's not about winning anymore. It's not about, as you're saying, hey, if I got a little tweak, I'm going to get out there for my team. They, uh, you know, if they lose at 11 o'clock on a Saturday, they win or lose, they play again at one. If they yeah. lose at one, they're in the paper mache or bronze championship for the world title on Sunday morning. And and at the end, they get a ring they put on Facebook and they get 4,000 likes from all the parents. And everybody seems to be more happy about the pseudo performance than the actual performance nowadays. So um, we got a lot of work to do with this sport. I think we're, we're I, I'm... I'm never an optimistic. I'm 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 usually on the other side. That's that's a an issue with my amygdala that I got to figure out. There's my biological term of the day, but yeah, um, yeah I just I think we got a lot of work to do. But I do think the pendulum's swinging back, and I think we're well, making. I it hope it does. You know, I, it, when we when we do our podcast, it, it's the things that bother us in the game, and and to a man when we get together with these at these sports collectors' appearances and stuff at all the four, like with the Phillies alumni. Uh, weekend it was just a marvelous weekend and uh, the hospitality and generosity of their owner john middleton was just fantastic and we all talk about how much we love the game i mean it's been in my blood since i was seven years old about wanting to be a big leaguer so i love the game but the big divide that's happened i'd say in the last decade is just bothersome because they've got so much talent out there 
that's not being trained in the proper way and not reaching their full potential. So we have to watch these talented pitchers go six innings and, and come out of the game and uh, pitch like 120 innings a year. Uh, yeah. and, and owners are paying big money for <laughs> for that. They could be getting a lot more for it. Yeah. Well, as I, I tell people off the air, I haven't used this on the air though, but I, I, we're, we have close to 45,000 subscribers. That's 90,000 ears out there that are listening to this and, and hearing what we're saying. So maybe we, we can help push the pendulum even more where we can save the game one listener at a time here. So I encourage you, Jim, to keep, keep talking the talk and cause you've walked the walk and, and uh, we will, we'll push, we'll push the envelope without a doubt. Good. Well, I, I enjoyed it as also. I look forward to the next one. Yes. And uh, anything, any last words for the audience or, Watch that! Watch that September baseball. See who uh, see who's got what it takes. It's like uh, you know, it's like pitching the last two innings, or uh, it's like closing out a Masters golf tournament. Those last three holes, you know, it's a whole lot different than those first fifteen were. So that's what's going to happen to the, you know, the teams like the Orioles and teams that are in the close running, and, and even some of them, you know, that are hoping to get a wild card spot, even though it's kind of a Everybody gets a trophy yeah. syndrome, but uh, it's still good for the fans, I guess, that say, hey, well, our team made the playoffs, even though they were two games over 500. So, uh, yeah, it, it creates a little more of a, of a stress than it did when just there were one champion in each league. Yeah, it will be. And we'll cover a little bit of that next week and in September and get your thoughts on the playoff race and into the playoffs. And I like that stat, the last three holes of the Masters. I always say that in basketball, too. You take – when. When the game's on the line in the last minute, throw throw free throw percentage right out the window. The guys that want the ball in their hands, whether they're shooting 50% or 90, those guys are going to be clutch and make those. Those 90% shooters that make them early on, that don't want it at the end of the game, those are the ones you take out. So, But uh, great show as usual, uh, Jim. And this is Real Voices of the Game, episode 261. We're at Cott's Corner, Hall of Famer Jim Cott. Thanking you guys for your support. All you subscribers out there, 74 countries, grassroots MLB front offices, give us a big thumbs up uh, when you rate the show. Five stars, please. Write some great comments about the job that Jim does. We appreciate his effort. And you've got the ear of the people that are in this audience. So keep keep pumping it out every week, Jim. We appreciate you so much. Okay, Dave. Thank you. Fulfilling when it flow from the